0: the class geography of America's hinterland.
1: What has kind of produced these areas gets to another core of of one of the book's arguments, which is this continual and continual kind of constant tendency toward crisis in a capitalist economy. And the fact that crisis doesn't just kind of happen in general to the whole economy, it's um, applied unevenly at at the level of geography. So some areas, experience it in wildly different ways, and many areas don't actually recover. So we talk about there being a recovery from the last uh, crisis, you know, now saying last crisis, you know, I'm referring to 2008, not the most recent one uh, this year, but we talk about a general kind of economic recovery from that crisis, but in in reality, many areas never recovered from that crisis. And in fact, many areas never even recovered from previous crises uh, that had preceded that one.
0: That's Philip A. Neal. We spend the hour with him talking about his book, *Interland*: America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict. It's out from the University of Chicago Press. This is Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm host and producer Francesca Rianan. Driven by an ever-expanding socioeconomic crisis, now exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, America's class structure is recomposing itself into new geographies of race, poverty, and production. Over the last 40 years, the human landscape of the U.S. has been fundamentally transformed. This metamorphosis is partially visible in the ascendance of glittering coastal hubs for finance, infotech, and the so-called creative class. But that's only the tip of an economic iceberg, the bulk of which lies in the darkness of the declining heartland or on the dimly lit fringe of sprawling cities. This is America's hinterland populated by towering grain threshers and hunched farm workers, where laborers drawn from every corner of the world crowd into factories and fulfillment centers. Urgent and unsparing, Philip Neal's book, Hinterland, is a guidebook to America's new heart of darkness. His book tells the intimate story of a life lived within America's hinterland. Philip Neal, welcome to Writer's Voice. This book, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict, a very, very interesting and exciting read for me. I want to ask you, Well, first of all, you come out of a kind of a Marxist tradition, is that right?
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, The book is sort of framed within a Marxist analytic framework, especially when it comes to... The notion of like class that i 'm using, for example
0: so hinterland, what is the hinterland that you talk about, and you actually divide it into near and far, so talk about that definition and those that division
1: so basically, the hinterland is kind of what we don 't talk about when we talk about cities um, or the the landscape of, of production in a country like the u s. In the last 20 years, especially kind of when I was entering the workforce, maybe first in um, the like late 2000s, early 2010s, when I was graduating from college or when I was working while I was in college, at those times, what a lot of people talked about was the creative class and these concentrations of kind of creative work, tech work. When you look into the literature on it, it also includes just kind of general things called producer services so that's like legal services it's all kinds of coordination work that kind of happens at like the headquarters of large companies um, administrative stuff and that creates these kind of agglomerations in these central cities at, at the time um, that were really kind of booming this was the first big wave of maybe not the first, but like the first kind of generalized wave generalized across almost all American cities or large cities where you had a lot of people kind of resettling in the what had been like the inner city except for in like some specific places that didn 't happen or it happened in a limited way or it happened late. that was the general kind of trend, and people were kind of talking about it as if it was driven by by this thing they called the creative class and it 's kind of you know artists and um students and just this kind of general kind of mishmash of of uh, often very vaguely defined types of work but you know like if you're like social media manager at some corporation or something you'd also technically be within this creative class kind of designation uh but it was a way to kind of talk about what was going on in the city at the time what it didn't do though is it really didn 't talk about what was going on elsewhere, so I was hearing this kind of when I was entering the job market in rural uh, the rural u s in like small cities or in places that weren 't even cities at all, basically like small towns, small cities, maybe at most like thirty thousand people, and I was kind of wondering what's going on in those those places and then when I moved into the uh, the first kind of big American cities that I moved into was I tried to go to LA and I ended up actually moving to uh, Seattle, which was cheaper at the time. And the first thing that I noticed when I moved to Seattle was that the city really didn't look kind of like I had imagined it to look. Uh, Like when I got here, the the cheapest place I could stay was out in um, the suburbs. And the suburbs were not the normal kind of picture of suburbs that you would have in kind of the American imaginary. The suburbs were, even at that time, and more so today in Seattle, were kind of, had become these places of hyper-diverse kind of working class settlements. Uh, A lot of foreign-born population was there. They were much poorer at that time, and uh, especially today, than the um, neighboring city was. And I didn't quite realize it at the time, but it was also that there was this whole economic basis for that. There was this whole boom in in logistics and warehousing and uh, transportation and uh, light forms of manufacturing and processing and all kinds of stuff was really going on and this wasn't something that had been um, Talked about so the hinterland to kind of return to the uh, original question The the hinterland is basically all of those sort of spaces that are outside that kind of creative class bubble of when we talk about American cities and we talk about the economies of American cities It's saying what's really going on outside of that. So what's going on in, in the rural US? What's going on in the? um peri-urban kind of areas, which I think is a better term than um, suburbs a lot of the time, because it doesn't carry the weird connotations that suburbs have culturally in the U.S. Um, I divide it into near hinterland and far hinterland. And the idea here of hinterland of, there are hinterlands of cities, but it's also a hinterland of of capital itself in many ways, like where is kind of investment happening and and why, and where is it kind of concentrated? Um, How do we kind of perceive that? And What's the kind of reality behind it? The far hinterland is what we would more or less think of as rural, but in reality, because it's defined relative to kind of capital investment, it also includes places that have uh, been kind of abandoned by capital. So it includes urban areas that have been uh, abandoned that were never uh, strongly attempted to be revived, or maybe like a f- small portions of them have been revived. Um, but then surrounding that is, is a full kind of rust belt city. Um, But then it also includes like the majority of it would be what we would think of as as kind of classically rural areas. Interestingly, there's a lot of shared issues between those two, um, two kind of faces of the far hinterland, even in the case of a city like Detroit slowly appearing more and more rural with like fields opening up in the city as demolitions outpace outpace new construction. So, in these areas of kind of abandonment, like where there's a general abandonment, what what is the actual economic character of these areas? The far hinterland is kind of de- defined by, on the one hand, that abandonment. On the other hand, like what does actually go on there? Usually, a much larger proportion of weird, informal, gray market and black market uh, activities to basically sustain people. And that's as true Again, in like where we would normally perceive like the drug trade happening um, in this kind of classical way in, in like a Rust Belt American city or something. But if you actually you know, look at the statistics, it's, it's going to be equally true in, um, I think it's better known now with like the, the shape of the opiate crisis in the US, but it's going to be equally true in, in like these far kind of rural areas. Um, and then in both places, it's kind of blown up and exaggerated uh, in, in very similar ways.
0: If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with writer and geographer Philip Neal about his book, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict. It reminds me of what also other people have talked of as sacrifice zones, uh, which can be urban, such as, as you mentioned, Detroit or Camden, New Jersey, for example. And of course, in the hinterland, as you say, and in the rural areas, you were going to be talking about the economy of of this. And also talk about the roots of the economic situation in this area.
1: Yeah. So in this far hinterland context of like rural areas, sacrifice zones, the sacrifice zones kind of concept is a good, it's a good way of framing it because these are kind of the areas that have been sort of abandoned by the the kind of regular economy in many ways. And what's left behind is people just kind of, trying to live kind of however they can and industries that are particularly brutal. Um, And so that's industries, you know, extractive industries where you have maybe something like mountaintop mining or something. Um, You have kind of the leftover kind of leftover pollution from the industry that has left. You also have especially kind of brutal industries in the sense of of brutal towards other people so you have a lot of prisons are located in like rural the rural us for example and huge portions of like those counties are employed at the prison and then if you look at it on like a a racial map of the u.s like there's this very clear speck in the middle of a rural area that's you know predominantly non-white in a county that's maybe 90 percent white or something like that so you have these particular kind of brutal industries. What has kind of produced these areas uh, gets to another core of, of one of the book's arguments, which is this continual and continual kind of constant tendency toward crisis in a capitalist economy, and the fact that crisis doesn't just kind of happen in general to the whole economy; it's um, applied unevenly at the at the level of geographies. So some areas experience it in wildly different ways and many areas don't actually recover so we talk about there being a recovery from the last uh, crisis you know now saying last crisis you know i'm referring to 2008 not the most recent one uh, this year but we talk about a general kind of economic recovery from that crisis but in, in reality Many areas never recovered from that crisis. And in fact, many areas never even recovered from previous crises uh, that had preceded that one. So the, you know, what we call like the dot-com bubble in in 2001, it had crisis effects, which rippled through much more of the economy than just the dot-com tech sector similarly, you know, about every decade or so, you have some sort of kind of recessionary crisis and you've had several that are larger than others. And then you've had a few crises that have been specific to like the far hinterland, like you had, you know, a farm crisis and you had a timber crisis and you had, um, uh, you know, even, even before that, you had a series of kind of boom bust cycles in those industries. But these kind of final crises for a lot of these places were where you had kind of the Nail was put in the coffin of their kind of respective industries, whether it be like timber or farming or whatever. And the remainder, you know, what, what remained after that was was a very small amount of production uh, compared to what had existed before, and usually greater levels of concentration of monopolization in terms of like land ownership, um, and that's especially true for farming. But it's also true if you look at uh, you know who owns like logging rights and stuff. It's it's just going to be a few companies in many places now.
0: And you link this with the rise of a resurgent far right in rural and ex-urban America. I mean, we've certainly seen that under Trump. We've seen that kind of acceleration. Start back with the Maller Refuge and, and Bundy before that. A lot of this has centered around the issue of public lands, protests about land use. What is the basis of this? This is a very anti-taxation kind of anti-rent movement?
1: So there's, there's a few kind of important things to kind of keep in mind about this kind of far right movement that's located specifically in these cases in the far hinterland. So it's really not something that's, that's made a lot of inroads kind of in urban areas. Uh, at most, a lot of people who, who staff these things come from um exurbs which are kind of like at the limit of the urban tether uh and there's an important point about exurbs which i'll I'll make uh later but the the kind of core of of these movements as you said is kind of rejection of like taxation and a rejection of of economic rents more generally and rents here used in the kind of this economics uh more kind of this sense, drawn from economics, not from kind of the commonplace meaning of rent, uh, it would just be any kind of thing like a like a tax or an extra cost added onto something or a fine or uh, anything of that kind of character, including actual uh, rents as well. But the uh, the basic idea is that you have these areas out in the far hinterland. The economy is more or less. Collapsed. And so, what is the economic base of these areas? A lot of them, especially in these western states where you saw the rise of that new militia movement that went under many names under the Patriot movement, kind of cohered around Bundy, the um, three percenters as well. Um, This is kind of a resurrection in some ways, and in other ways, it's really not of the old militia movement from the 1990s. But basically, what coheres this far-right militia movement is this rejection of what they perceive to be uh, rents drawn primarily by the federal government and their support for local, largely small scale or like mid, mid-sized capitalists in the sense of uh, people who actually own whatever remains of the productive apparatus in those areas, whether that be like Ranchers or uh, people who own remaining mills or mines, um, in the case of uh, one of the confrontations outside Grant's Pass in Oregon, uh, where the militia people came in to defend some uh, small ish holder of a of a mine uh, who was i think getting getting uh, in trouble with the BLM because they hadn't paid like a mineral a mineral tax or something like that, so a lot of the economic base in these areas is kind of split in in this, you could kind of roughly characterize it. Uh, there's specific numbers in the book, but you kind of roughly characterize it as like, uh, uh, into thirds. So one third is kind of like unemployed or informally employed. Um, and they, they don't have regular work or maybe they work on the black market kind of stuff. Another third is dependent either directly or indirectly. Um, on uh, federal money, usually federal, sometimes state money, but that's basically people working for like the Forest Service or the BLM, or uh, receiving uh, you know state money that's going to schools and places that can't kind of draw enough from local property taxes. So all of those sort of people are are more directly kind of dependent on those large scale kind of rents that are that are drawn by the government, and these are generally areas that are not they're they're taking in more resources than they're producing at this point because they've been, uh, they'd had their local kind of economic base collapse many, uh, often many decades ago. And the uh, other third is people who still kind of work in, in either direct, or indirect way, have some sort of connection to the remnants of that, the productive base in that area, whether that that, that be... You know working on the on the farms or the ranches or the remaining ones that have been monopolized or working for whatever monopoly still exists there or you know they they have connections with people who have like these mineral rights and run the remaining mines or they work at like the, the you know one of the many mills um, that used to be there, but like the one that didn't close out of maybe 20 that used to operate in an area in the Pacific Northwest. So there's this, uh, the essential kind of conflict uh, is that you have this one fraction of the population kind of pose against this, the other fraction that's dependent on those federal rents. And so it kind of creates this weird situation where people are going and and like the at the wildlife refuge, they're going and like actually occupying one of the areas that in reality is actually one of the largest economic kind of sites for that area because of the federal money that comes in um through like the the you know forest service or BLM. And so you have the the basis of these movements is this kind of weird uh impetus to defend the remainder of kind of the productive apparatus in that area, kind of against this dependence on the federal government in many ways. And that's why the federal government kind of appears as like the primary kind of rent taker in these places. It's because it, it does act as, as kind of this last late stage sustaining force for many of these counties, which don't have any other forms of income, but they do have like a decent base of like Forest Service employment. Um, So you have this conflict that kind of forms where people go and defend the remainder of the economic base that does exist against this kind of perception of like a predatory state, whether or not, you know, that's true. In many cases it it, it is true, but not necessarily in the way that they perceive it to be like in these, these, in these instances, there are very onerous rents that do get um, charged in many of these places. Um, But they generally, you know, the thing is they're usually attacking kind of in this weird way People like employed by the Forest Service or the BLM or something like that. And then they're protesting not the more general kind of rents that might be applied by the state in these areas, such as like fines that police are handing out or uh, state troopers pulling people over or people getting busted for uh, growing weed or things like that. They're protesting (laughs) things like mineral licenses or land uh, taxes that have to be paid specifically by this these small capitalists. And so that's where, really where they kind of cohere around these small holders in these areas, which I say small cap- capitalists, but they're often, you know, aside from the large kind of monopolies that are, that own uh, maybe like Timberland or something, in the area, these are like the, the largest business people in those areas. Usually they're just small in the sense of compared to the economy at large, they're small holders.
0: Yeah. This is pretty interesting because I think a lot of people uh, think of those who are in the far right as being more the kind of, you know, used to be called the lump and proletariat or people who are, you know, in the informal or the illegal economy. In fact, they're more, you know, the petty bourgeoisie people who, you know, actually have some resources because otherwise it's very difficult to understand why they would be so in favor of the private appropriation of public lands. When public lands are supporting so much of, of the economy, in fact, what they're arguing for, I mean, and the rents that they pay, for example, for ranging, you know, the cattle, cattle ranging are extremely low. But what they're against is regulation, they're against government, and they, ironically, you say in this book, Philip Neal, in Hinterland, that they have uh, been more or less successful in many places in supplanting the government and kind of taking over community functions. And this was quite frightening. I wonder if you could talk about that.
1: Uh, So a few good kind of threads come out of uh, that. I'll start with what you said at the end of supplanting local government. I think that's sort of the in many of their cases, strategically was kind of the ideal scenario. And I wouldn't say it, it really happened in many places. I wouldn't say it even happened in almost any place except for a little bit in like Grants Pass area in uh, in Oregon. And, and even then, not actually in the city of Grants Pass, but in the surrounding kind of county when uh, they had all these extreme budget cuts, to the extent that like the local sheriff, uh, sheriff's department, like just stopped working on the weekend because they couldn't afford it. For example, and so then you had these kind of armed uh, militias that did like a little bit of that sort of patrol work, and they did emergency management kind of preparation. the The case, the reason that I'm using that kind of case, is more to illustrate kind of this general ideal form of like their strategic uh, approach in these places. The ultimate conclusion, though, is that they kind of systematically failed in most of these places. They actually didn't get the support that it seems like they should have gotten if you accept kind of the normal, um, I think like urban leftist view of what the rural US looks like um where it seems like oh you have a bunch of of poor people you have uh many places in these rural areas are going to be disproportionately white not exclusively i talked about how that's kind of a myth in the book but if you look at at rural oregon for example um you're gonna have a lot of counties that are that are much whiter than the average kind of american city and it seems according to that normal kind of urban leftist logic it seems like oh these people are all poor white people they should be like Racist, and they should be behind this sort of far right politics. And in reality, they aren't. Like it's it's much more nuanced than that. The poor in these areas are not, not the ones who are throwing the biggest support behind the far right. Uh, of course, you can find plenty of poor people who get involved in that sort of stuff. And when you're white and you go into the prison system, um, you know that's a huge recruitment base for like the Aryan Nation and stuff. But the general kind of attitude of of most. People kind of on the ground in the the lower class in the rural areas is, is very similar to elsewhere. It's, you know, don't vote for either party, just general kind of non-voting, non-voting a general kind of political nihilism, a, a general non-engagement with politics in many senses. And then when there is some engagement, like it's kind of messy and it gives a perception that people might be... Uh, uh, farther to the right than they are, because they don 't necessarily kn- know how to speak of politics very well, but when you actually talk uh, to them face to face about what they want, like as in anywhere else in, in the u s people will essentially be you know espousing elements of what almost seemed like a clear socialist or communist politics, but of course, in the u s context couldn 't take that name uh, for people who who maybe have very little like uh, a political you know training in terms of of how you speak of things and have been told that those are very bad things, so who is really supporting these movements so this gets to um that first part of the question that you asked. The reality is that. A lot of the most avid support, um, of course, it comes from these smallholders themselves, like the Bundys, who are this large land holding family. It's interesting because people from um, the cities look at this and they say, oh, that's like the white working class that's supporting that. And it's a joke. It, it, it's really like, like their working class in the same sense that like, Someone who owns like eight different like apartment buildings or something in in a big American city is like working class. Like they're they're very much just like large landholders, you know. But they culturally they do these certain things which signify like a working class identity. It's in the same way that like pop country kind of signifies a working class identity, even though the stuff that it's uh, maybe singing about today compared to what country music would sing about back in the seventies is like super mild and has nothing to do with like a, you know, working class life. Um, The real support comes from these kind of small land hold holders who appear as, if they are working class, they're people I call the Carhartt dynasty, because it's people who will like buy a lot of like expensive Carhart, and they buy a lot of expensive, um, you know, they have big trucks that are all pretty nice and pretty new. And, you know, you go to like, poor person's farm, even if they do own, you know, a little bit of land, like that's not what a farm truck actually looks like. So, you know, you get this, this cultural portrayal and cultural kind of play acting as if you're working class uh, by wearing all that stuff. Okay. So that's like the core uh, people who are really driving the movement and and producing a lot of its theory. Who, Who are these other people who are kind of coming out with all this tactical gear that they bought on Amazon and like coming out, to these things on the weekend maybe like some of them are living in the um these kind of city areas you know in those places and they are almost universally in those kind of weirder uh positions in the class spectrum so that's something like maybe they are also landholders but they don't own that much land like they rent out a few uh houses or something in areas where the rental market is is kind of poor or more frequently a lot of them live in these exurbs. So I, I mentioned the exurb a second ago. Basically, what it is is it's kind of a suburb that's really at the very end of an urban tether. Um, it's it's really far out. It's usually it would take you like two hours or something sometimes to commute to like an exurb to and from to a city. But a lot of people who live in these these exurbs it, they're really interesting in terms of the um, uh, demographics of kind of American cities right now because. Something I'll talk about later, the near hinterland in these, what used to just be called suburbs, kind of traditional classic inner ring suburbs that are right outside the city. Those areas are, are in many places, no longer white areas. They are very diverse, uh, much poorer than the the core city in many cases, more foreign-born population. Um, part of what's happened is that white people have moved back into the inner city and you know, gentrified it and settled it in the way that we've kind of seen uh, portrayed in the media. But the other thing that's happened is that there's been continuing white flight outward. Uh, But what what does that actually look like when you kind of run out of suburbs? What you actually get is you get these weird exurban communities, which are some of the only areas actually in the U.S. uh, that have a just generally increasing white population. Like even the inner cities uh, that are having... uh, they are undergoing gentrification, like their white population is increasing, but the they kind of stabilize at a point of what you might think of as light diversity, where it's like very little class diversity, but in terms of, of, of ethnic composition, they, are, they have kind of light diversity. These exurbs though, they follow the older kind of pattern that suburbs used to um, exhibit in the US, where you just see like a massive increase of like the white population period. And, and that's where a lot of the white people who are leaving these areas or maybe going, um, if they have the capacity to leave. And in these excerpts, th- there's a lot of kind of ideological things that, that, that happen. One thing is that because they're so far from the city, they kind of imagine that they aren't in the city. They imagine themselves as kind of rural small towns. And so they, they exist as this weird, like idyllic, white nationalist fantasy in many ways, if you walk through the downtowns of many of these areas. And many of these areas are those areas that just a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, were like having a bunch of armed white people come out because they heard that there was going to be busloads of like Antifa coming into their city or something. And so they'd go to like the the weird little antiquated looking downtowns, like fake downtowns of, of uh, these small excerpts. But the economic character of them is, is really not quite the same as other rural areas like it has kind of one foot in that rural sphere and so it really can kind of portray itself as that there are plenty of like uh poor residents who were maybe the people who lived there before um at the same time though many of the economic connections de facto still connect to the city. It's people who can like work from home. uh, But frequently, it's also people in these, these sort of bizarre locations on the class spectrum that just, you know, it is what you, uh, as you mentioned before, kind of part of what used to kind of classically refer to as like the petty bourgeoisie, which included all these smallholders, but also included people who are are, would be kind of like these weird like construction contractors, a lot of police officers who work in especially these inner ring suburb police departments. Uh, Many of them live out in the exurbs, um, often quite far. So you have these exurban areas that are actually tasked in many ways with, A, kind of policing the new zones of poverty in the city, um, which are suburban. And at the same time, they have this economic connection to the city um, and to the like real estate bubble and to uh, the construction of new corporate headquarters because they're driving into the city to like oversee their work, their employees because there's some sort of you know a construction contractor uh, which you know essentially if, if we're being honest like someone in that sort of position is themselves kind of a, a predatory kind of rent taker if you know how kind of all the weird bureaucracy and inefficiencies of American construction um, it's like the, it's one of the few industries that like doesn't get more productive over time. And the US construction is like horribly unproductive compared to even global construction, which is generally kind of like, has very slow productivity growth. And so it's these people sitting at these weird kind of predatory positions, either as a police officer who's policing these kind of new zones of poverty, or it's someone who's like a construction contractor where they can kind of pretend to be working class because they get up early and they also have the, you know, the nice big truck and they go into the city and they maybe do a little bit of manual labor.
0: Philip A. Neal. Stay tuned for more of our conversation about his book, Hinterland. Don't go away. <phone rings> That was Occupation Freedom by the Global Block Collective on the album Occupy This Album. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. I invite you to sign up for the free Writer's Voice podcast and newsletter at writersvoice.net. You can find more great content there, including web-only features like book recommendations and extended interviews. Now let's get back to our conversation with Philip Neal about his book, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict. Just before the break, Neal was telling us that many of the adherents of right-wing groups aren't poor working-class whites, but rather well-paid construction contractors and policemen who tend to live in exurban areas closer to cities and suburbs where poor people live, often poor black and brown people. So that's, that's very really interesting. Of course, in the context of the whole, um, Black Lives Matter and the organization, mass organizations against, uh, police brutality happening now. And in fact, you know, a lot of these Black Lives Matter protests have even reached into those exurban areas. Of course, they haven't been Antifa, they've been just local folks. Um, and one of the things, you know, that, That you say is that, which I, I found very interesting, is that Trump, you know, was kind of a premature rise of the right, you know, maybe before the right was really big enough or organized enough to take full advantage of it current circumstances notwithstanding, and that this has really been a real opening for the left. And I think that's really true. I mean, you wrote this before the, the most latest surge of the Black Lives Matter movement. But I mean, we can talk about the rise of uh, Bernie Sanders and the Not Me, Us movement. We can talk about the uh, William Barber. I mean, William Barber had, you know, the the new anti-poverty march, virtual march million people tuned in. I was one of them, which is huge. And we're really seeing a real sea change. I mean, who knows how long it will last, but a real sea change in kind of more left awareness. And as you said also, so many people are really in favor. I mean, 70% of the American people are in favor of Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. So talk about the contrast between, you know, what appears to be a growing resurgence of the right and how much power do they really have and this resurgence on the left.
1: So most of the book, interestingly, was actually written even before Trump was elected. It was kind of written in that uh, finished up in that election year um, and then edited kind of in the immediate months kind of afterwards, more or less. So a lot of what was being talked about was dynamics that had existed before Trump. Uh, He was even a a candidate before anyone thought he would run for president. the one point that i make in in the book about these kind of far right movements is is a kind of what i was saying earlier they really aren't mass movements in many respects um especially these kind of militia ones and they they got surprisingly little support in the areas that they were in a lot of them had to really concentrate their forces and one of their tactics has actually been uh consistent it, it's almost uh similar to like what the alter globalization movement used to do like you actually send Everyone out to a specific city, you know, in that year, you know, in those cases, it was because that's where like the WTO meeting would be happening or something like that. But, it allows you to kind of concentrate forces and appear a little bit bigger than than it might be kind of among just regular people. And the far right has been kind of doing something like this, where most of their events are events like that, where you everyone goes to one city or what or whatever, um, and they're usually all wealthy enough to you know buy a plane ticket or drive there or, or whatever. And it's not that much of a. Um, It's not a real representation of kind of mass support but it does get a lot of people kind of in certain events even those have kind of degenerated over time and interestingly they've actually become although they have in many ways become more noticed because of the level of like spectacular violence that far-right people perform against uh especially when there's like an active left-wing movement Despite that, though, that makes it more visible. A lot of people notice it more and it gets talked about a lot more. When you look at the actual numbers of people participating in these kind of far-right groups, whether they be militia movements or all these far-right kind of gatherings that were happening, it's actually decreased under Trump. Uh, in many respects. Now, how do you measure that? It's like a little complicated. So there have certainly been like big kind of events, but a lot of, you know, that, that big kind of push into like the alt-right, it had its kind of peak and then it sort of collapsed. A lot of the militia movement stuff, it hasn't dissolved. They're still there. They're still involved in all this stuff, but it also kind of reached a certain peak. And this actually follows a pretty classic trajectory within American right-wing politics, where because they take the federal government as... Such a key point of opposition, especially for the movements that actually do cohere, like the small number of regular people who go and are sympathetic to this stuff, are largely these movements when they they uh, go against like you know taxation and the U.S. federal government and uh, all of that stuff. Those movements tend to get largest under democratic administrations or under kind of middling uh, center Republican administrations, which we probably won't have anymore. But they tend to get the largest under Democratic administrations because it creates a very kind of easy uh, narrative for them. It creates a very clear kind of process of antagonism and they don't have any kind of level of, of state power in those um, uh, in those administrations because they don 't they don 't incorporate into the patronage structure of the democratic party uh, people forget, but like the one reason that Democrats don't frequently get elected in U.S. rural areas is not because people don't like their other politics. It's frequently because Democrats simply don't have a rural policy. Um, In fact, Obama did the best uh, in terms of recent uh, Democratic elections in rural counties um, in the U.S., including in like my home county in northernmost California, actually won the county, which then went for Trump later. But it's because Obama was like one of the few uh, Democrats who even posed any kind of like rural policy and people just kind of, you know, saw that he had some sort of rural policy and that tended to turn those counties kind of in favor. Uh, but the generally the Republican patronage structure is much more solid in these rural areas, and so that means that when you do have a Republican um, administration, that patronage structure is, is working to kind of funnel some of that right-wing activity into formal politics in a way that makes formal politics, yes, more right-wing, but it also kind of uh, tends to make the far-right politics uh, that does exist a, a little bit weakened on, in kind of the at the level of like mass politics. Um, that doesn't mean that they're not, you know dangerous like obviously they are and they and they commit these murders and they turn when they can't um target the the federal government like it becomes more common to target like the left wing itself um to target uh minorities target um you know just so that's why that kind of like hate crime portion of what they're doing becomes a little bit more prominent under like republicans but the mass kind of political stuff becomes i think less less prominent
0: I'm Francesca Rhiannon, and this is Writer's Voice. We're talking with writer Philip Neal about his book, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict. So do you see an opening then, I mean, you know, just in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, which I actually think is about, it's about racial justice, but it's about more than that. I I, I kind of feel like... um, It's uh, an expression in its diversity of people, you know, have had a few months to stay at home and think things through and uh, be completely forgotten by the federal government and the ruling elites, and that it's an expression of more than anger at anti-Black police brutality, it's a kind of solidarity movement that I find quite heartening. And I, I wonder, you know, and that the solidarity is is an expression of, of in some way, people saying we're all in this together and we need to fight for justice. Do you feel like that's too optimistic or what's your sense on this? What's your take?
1: Well, I think that the, the movement has been really fascinating for a lot of reasons. and One of the reasons is kind of these, all of these confluence of, of conditions that kind of made it um, look like it did, like the you know the fact that there was a pandemic um, the the fact that it was kind of in some ways a repetition of of the first black lives matter sequence, but it was so much more generalized, the fact that it was also focused in beginning in Minneapolis, and then some of the cities that it spread to the first were also kind of interesting, like which cities and why because it wasn 't necessarily um, like it kind of spread everywhere at, at a certain point, but you would you would imagine that it might spread to certain of the kind of classical like the classic kind of old like northeastern like democratic kind of cities that have. Uh, large levels of segregation still and and that sort of thing, but actually it spread the fastest in in places that were not of that kind of character. Like it got very big in Seattle, all of a sudden, you know, it was very big in the Bay area. Of course it was um, in LA, the protests were kind of huge in Atlanta, um, in DC. And a lot of actually what connected some of these cities that saw some of the biggest and quickest uh, uh, protests around it, Including Minneapolis, are uh, the fact that these are many of the cities where a lot of the dynamics that I, I'm pointing out in the book, in regards to the, this near hinterland of suburbanization and uh, how it relates to gentrification and stuff, where those are kind of the most ex- aggressive and extreme, and these are the these are literally like the the cities. Um, that I list, uh, you know, kind of point by point. I look at like Minneapolis and Twin Cities in general as like this great illustration of all of these points in Seattle and Atlanta and DC are also uh, these illustrations uh, as well as the um, kind of LA megacity. And so that kind of gave this really interesting character to this round of, of the movement where it didn't just start like, you know, the uprising in Ferguson happens in a suburb which i think people often today don't don't even haven't quite registered the the fact that that was a suburb um and that that gave that struggle all kinds of vitality that it might not otherwise have have, have had which you know i write about why that is um in in the book but part of it is is you don't have as nearly as large of a police force. You have an administration that's uh, very predatory on the population, which triggers the um, the uprising in the first place, because the tax base has has collapsed. And then you also have uh, the lack of a democratic party apparatus to help stifle the protests and and uh, guide them into more you know uh, mild, peaceful, electoral kind of uh, directions. Uh, and that's usually what what happens if you compare similar uprisings that happen in like the heart of New York City to Ferguson, that's basically one of the big differences. Isn't that like the police don't show up and try to stop it? It's that they're, you know, in New York, the NYPD, uh, this might be a slightly old statistic, but the the number should be something like this still. They're about like the seventh largest standing army in the world um, versus like Ferguson PD, which you know was like i think less than 100 total like officers or maybe less than 100 total employees you know and that's why they had to call in the police forces of all the neighboring areas and then the state um, police and all of that so regardless it's still that last cycle was still kind of happening and focused it was focused on a suburb but it was still focused on one of uh, on one of those american cities that kind of had that classic Uh, black-white segregation kind of divide. Uh, Minneapolis is very different, you know, in many ways. It it represents kind of what most American cities um, outside of a few specific kind of uh, Rust Belt areas are are trending toward over time, which is that you still do have, uh, you know, segregation and you still do have kind of harsh divides in those areas, uh, but it tends to follow slightly different kind of logic where you see a, a split between like light diversity in the old inner city which has now been gentrified and then on the other side you have high diversity areas where you don't necessarily always have a lot of strict exclusion about like this is a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood in census data, and this is a predominantly black neighborhood. It's more that there's like a lot of intermixing in these high diversity areas. So you have hyper diverse like school districts with like so many languages spoken in some of these cities. It is actually like legitimately difficult um, to even like administer that school district because you have like upwards of like 90 languages spoken. You know, something along those lines, which is actually what it looks like in suburban Seattle. And Minneapolis is very similar in many ways. Uh, and that's why that early kind of wave of the rebellion, uh, like certainly it's, it's a continuation of the Black Lives Matter kind of sequence from uh, 2014 and then the subsequent protests. Um, at the same time, the participation in these cities, like I, I, you know, I've been at those, I went to those protests back in, in 2014, 2015, uh, and kind of the follow-up. Um, the participation has been huge. And in many of these, especially early cities that had the first kind of sequence of of protests and joined in, it's been very, very young and very, very diverse by comparison. Um, And the participation in many cases, you know, one of my theories of why it it got as big as it did at the very beginning uh, was kind of that a lot of the people who come in to to do the soft containment of these sort of protests... uh, we're staying home because of the virus, Uh, like the formal kind of activist organizations and the formal uh, democratic kind of union wing of people who come and do peace policing at the protests for the first weekend. I think a lot of those people actually like stayed home and it was just a lot of radical zoomers, uh, hyper diverse going out and uh, triggering that whole wave that spread to all of these cities in that first week where, you know, uh, you had immense, not only immense crowds, but like the, the level of radical action that was just kind of the default chosen by those crowds was so much higher than had existed in previous kind of sequences. It would, it used to take a, a while in these protests to like get to looting, for example. Um, and this one just kind of started there. I think that, l- that level of mass popular consciousness of what is, what forms of, of just militant violence against you know, the powers uh, of the state and of the large companies in these areas just started at such a higher level than it has uh, previously.
0: I'm Francesca Rhiannon, and this is Writer's Voice. We're talking with writer Philip Neal about his book, Hinterland. Actually, I've heard that Minneapolis is a very segregated city. um, And uh, also that a lot of the organizing for these protests has been going on for a long time, I and mean, that's why people have, uh, you know, why why demands that are pretty sophisticated, like defund the police, you know, came up early. Uh, I, I think, you know, what has struck me is how many people who never really thought about these things. I mean, just look at the uh, uh, the statistics about whites thinking about. Whether police brutality is higher against black people i mean there 's been a huge shift in the in the awareness of that and even in the willingness to to look to to even think about defund the police or abolition of prisons i mean these This is something that 's been going on for a while in terms of organizing, but the mass consciousness of it and ad adoption of it. I think is quite a, a larger and interesting social phenomenon. And I just wonder if you feel that the left finally has some answers that are really resonating among the population in general.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, in general, there's been a lot of things that have kind of contributed to forcing people to kind of look to think about just politics in general, whereas in the U.S., that's maybe not like as as common a thing for many people, like, but in the condition of like pandemic and quarantine and then everything going on and having to kind of take a side and having time to not be at work and to actually like, you know, read or, you know, watch uh, what's actually going on on live streams or to go out yourself and participate in it. I mean, that's clearly kind of triggered this, um, very rapid kind of signal of a change in public consciousness. At the same time, I think that the, the, again, the general level of like the average young person in the U S is so much better, uh, educated about this, this stuff compared to older generations for a lot of different reasons. But one reason is that it's so salient, you know, it's so on the surface, if you, Grow up knowing that like climate change is a thing, for example, um, and seeing all these police murders on TV, you know, and then questioning, you know, why that is kind of in those early stages of of life and then having to go into the job market and ask those questions about economic crisis and, and all of that. I think it's produced just much, much farther left starting point for a lot of people. And a lot of those consciousness changes that are happening are kind of trickling up in many ways, I think, from that, that kind of mass agitation on the part of um, young people. Um, oh, I did want to clarify, though, I'm not saying that uh, Minneapolis and other cities are not segregated. It, it's that they have a changing character of segregation, where when you look at it kind of over time, what most U.S. cities are doing is you actually have hardening um, segregation of many Black neighborhoods in, um, in cities. It's actually increased over time. Um, but then in certain cities, especially outside of the Rust Belt, uh, you have this additional level of segregation that occurs where you have light diversity areas and high diversity areas. And it's still very much a, a segregation line. Um, it, it's just, not necessarily the segregation line that we uh, used to look for. But there's a lot of work by uh, American geographers kind of talking about, you know, exactly what these kind of things look like. And in some cities, like in Seattle, it it really is a pretty strong light diversity, high diversity, and that's kind of the segregation line. You know, it correlates to kind of class and um, poverty and income levels and stuff like that as well. But then in other cities, like in Minneapolis, you have some of the holdover uh, patterns of the older segregation um, that haven't been uh, gentrified away or whatever. Um, and then on top of that, you have this this new type of segregation that's forming in American cities between that light diversity wealthy area and the, the high diversity uh, poorer area.
0: And, you know, that's just so much shows the value of geography, which is your area of of study at this time. And it's really uh, what informs your wonderful book, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict. There's so much more in the book. It's very rich and fascinating to read. Um, Philip, Neil, thank you so much for talking with us here on Writer's Voice. Yeah, no problem. Philip A. Neal. Neal teaches geography at the University of Washington. He was raised in a mobile home in the Siskiyou Mountains on the border of California and Oregon. He writes regularly on various topics and currently lives in Seattle. Read a terrific review of his book, Hinterland, at writersvoice.net. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. You can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. I'm your host, Francesca Riannon.